welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. As always, I'm your host, Andy, and today we're joined by Dr. Gray Copeland from Murdoch University in southwestern Australia. Gray started her ecological career working with seagrasses and moved into habitat restoration on land through reforestation projects. Now she works to bring Miyawaki forests into urban environments to increase urban biodiversity and to rewild urban landscapes. If you're not familiar with Miyawaki forests, please check out our previous episode where we dive into the science and history of these unique forests. Miyawaki forests go by a few different names, such as tiny forests, and are highlighted as being a solution to tackle some of the issues around reforestation, specifically around providing an appropriate amount of biodiversity in order to have successful, resilient reforestation projects geared toward local ecological conditions. Gray's work is incredibly inspiring, and you can see it on Instagram at MiyawakiForestWA. And I think you all will really enjoy this conversation. I sure did. Great. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm an ecologist by my profession. Um, I do a background in seagrass, mangroves, ecological restoration. I completed my PhD in uh, mangrove systems up in the far north of Australia. So uh, watching my back for crocodiles. <laughs> um, uh, also, I did my seagrass research in shark infested waters down the south coast down here. So you know, a knife strapped to my side, more for my own peace of mind than for any real protection it offered. <laughs> <laughs> also, mother of two, um, a huge Jane Austen fan and, and K-drama addict. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I feel like... Australia is just a continent that wants to kill you. So yep, I feel like that's almost par for the course for you guys. <laughs> so it's interesting that you went from seagrass to getting into this concept of tiny forests or pocket forests. There's basically uh, a number of different terms that tend to get thrown around, usually in like, I don't know, like social media format where it's like, look at this tiny forest that they put in 100 square meters or whatever it might be. It's an interesting concept, and I'm curious about how you kind of went from what you were saying, working mostly in the ocean, ocean side areas, and then getting into this this type of work. Yeah, well, there's, there's quite there's a few similarities, a few crossovers for the seagrass work. You know, it's all about you know preparation beforehand in terms of choosing a good site. Similar for the Miyawaki methods, a lot of preparation before you get the forest in the ground. So. Yeah, you do a lot of work on um, species selection, site remediation for the Miyawaki method. And then to come, you know, from seagrass, there's obviously transplanting, there's no preparation for the site, but there's a lot of preparation in choosing the correct donor meadow, making sure you're selecting sprigs from the leading edge to make sure that you're collecting the growing part of the rhizome. And then, you know, obviously, once you've got your donor material, transferring them over to the donor site, madly tying on the sprigs as you're going, because it's all action-packed on the day. And then, of course, there's the logistics of working underwater as well, where you've got to, you know, make sure you don't run over, you know, carry all your crates of seagrass and then put them in the ground, make sure you're pairing up the right people with the right job. You know, it's, it's pretty intensive. But I guess the comparison between the Miyawaki work and the seagrass work is all about doing your research beforehand to make sure you're actually doing the right thing, recognizing the right system. Yeah, yeah, I feel I can relate to that. One of the things that I, I do a bit of is working with uh, like meadows and things like that. And it's very similar when I was reading the Miyawaki method, 
that you could be you're basically doing the same thing but with an older growth system but basically it's the same concept where it's dense planting things that have relationships with one another some commonalities and um kind of just plugging them in and recognizing that there's well with meadows there's a lot of filler that people don't think about like the native grasses we tend to focus on flowers but native grasses usually make up the bulk of a meadow and I, I think the same thing kind of plays out within the forest setting of the old growth forest setting that you're trying to recreate with the Miyawaki method. So as somebody that's working in this space that is predominantly based in Japan, basically, and some of some other parts of Asia, how accessible has this become and kind of what what has been the feedback or, you know, what are your experiences on trying to bring this into the Anglo world? It, it's very different from an Australian perspective because um, in the area where I'm working, we have, yeah, we have old growth forests right down south, but the region I'm working in is mostly bushland. So we have a lot of sort of medium sized trees, which, you know, maybe don't grow more than 15, 20 meters, but we have a huge amount of understory species. And in, in the southwest of Western Australia, we're in a hot spot for biodiversity. So we've got over 8,000 different species within this region. And then, oh, wow. so when you're selecting your species for trans, you know, putting into your forest, your species selection changes within a matter of five kilometers. So that's uh, three miles in, in Pericle. So, you know, you've got to do a species survey every single time you put a forest in here because everything changes. Like in the UK, uh, when you're putting a forest in, usually you're using a very similar suite of species, but for biodiversity hotspots, it's completely different each time you put something in. Yeah, there'll be a few carryover species, but the rest of it's, you know, new. So that's pretty challenging. And of course, the species composition that you're putting in is very different from what you'd experience in where you've got an old growth forest, like in Japan, where you've got a huge, you know, the Miyawaki method, you're broken down into canopy, tree, subtree, and shrub layers, where for me, there's only a few canopy species that I'm putting in, and the vast bulk is a shrub layer. So uh, the proportions change hugely forests in Japan compared to a bushland that I'm planting here. Adaptation is key. Yeah, and that's the really challenging part. And I, it sounds like you might not have as much of a challenge as we do here. Where I live on the northeast coast of New England, we've been basically clear cut for the last 400 years. Nothing has survived. The The amount of trees that exist that are over 125 years is pretty minimal, despite the fact that previously there had been trees probably four or 500 years old mm -hmm. uh, as the norm. So you know, where I live is kind of, we're right on the edge of what's called the Pine Barrens and that's its own unique ecosystem. And then you get into the Oak Hickory ecosystem and trying to find models of that old growth forest that makes sense for this particular region is really difficult. I'm interested to know if you found some kind of, I don't want to call them workarounds, but, but more, you know, how, how do you address those issues when you say there's nowhere that I can really get an exact replica of what I'm trying to do or what should be here? Mm, yeah. Well, it's, it's very different here because we've got a lot of remnant bushland that's been preserved where it sounds like it's quite different in your area. So my advice would be for people wanting to do that, make a Miyawaki forest over there would be 
it's a basic it's doing a, a literature search on the web so you can you know use historical documents you can go to the gray literature and find government documents you know groups that have done um, surveys of remnant vegetation elsewhere so you can basically match it up to try and work out and just do a, a basically a, a research project if you like to try and find what would be appropriate for your area and of course indigenous owners or um, what first nation people they are a, a gold mine of information like for, for here our local Wujap Nonga people have been on this area for 40,000 years. So their knowledge of the systems here is incredible. And it'll be the same anywhere in the world. If you contact the First Nations people, they'll have a detailed account of what would be there and that have been handed down. So that would be a really good call as well. Yeah, yeah, that's some really great points. To kind of go on the inverse of that, what has been the feedback on this type of work from the academic community? I feel like and this might be because of the fact that this doesn't originate in uh, Anglo-speaking regions, but in doing research and trying to show evidence that of the successes of the Miwaki forests model, there doesn't seem to be a lot out there, at least from a cursory search. So I'm interested to know what kind of feedback you've gotten in, in that space. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. As I was saying earlier, I was on a symposium in Adelaide recently with Adelaide University, and there were um, academics from Japan presenting their research. Most of the uh, work that was presented there was from a, a social point of view. There wasn't very much in terms of a scientific you know, data-rich sort of uh, empirical evidence type of stuff. So the work I'm doing is probably a little bit different to what's going on there out there at the moment. From my university's point of view, I'm, I'm from Murdoch University and they're very supportive of my research efforts. I think I, it, we, need, we just need to build on the empirical data that we already have. Akira Miyawaki published an awful lot of information that's out there, but we still there's still so much that we need to learn about these forests and how they function, particularly from a soil microbial sort of aspect. The soil um, microbial profile, you know, inside and outside the forest are, are very, very different. So part of my research is looking at um, microbial activity, looking at respiration rates of the soil to get an idea of soil activity, and then using eDNA as well to assess uh, the biodiversity of the organisms that are in the soil. So that's a very sort of hard science approach and will give me some really sound empirical data. And I think that's quite welcome and necessary in the Miyawaki forest sort of community because there's not very much information on the soil profile out there. Absolutely. And there's probably not a huge amount of information on growth rates either. There is some data out there, but that also is, is, is fairly limited. Yeah, it's one again. Uh, you see a lot of these infographics on social media that'll you know when it's spouting the the benefits of these these projects, but when you try to actually trace the information, it kind of comes to a dead end pretty quickly. Yeah, and uh, that that can be a bit challenging when you want some actual evidence to back up what you're saying, especially when you're trying to get people to spend money and um, invest in projects that you think are really valuable and are really valuable. There's just no data suggesting that. There is a really good um, citizen science project. You probably read about that one that's been published, one of the universities in Europe. That's pretty data rich and they've got some really interesting data that they've collected over a number of years and the final report's coming out soon. And they've looked at um, diversity you know, in comparison with an adjacent um, natural system. And they've, well, I think they've, uh, their results are about 18 times the biodiversity of a natural system, which is right next door to the forest. And growth rates... Growth rates are often spouted, but when Professor Miyawaki was talking about the forest, it, it, you know, everyone says, oh, it's 10 times the growth rate and all this sort of stuff. It's actually 10 times faster to reach maturity 
I know that's a subtle difference, but it's quite an important one because you're not talking about plants growing 10 times as fast as traditional methods. You're talking about reaching maturity faster. And I think that's quite a critical you know, bit of information to make sure that people understand. Yeah, you're talking about skipping the early stage growth periods. Mm. And um, while there is individual tree increases, it's primarily because of the competition of the super dense forest and getting access to that light versus like anything particularly unique about the process itself, or at least that's the way I've understood it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the intensive soil remediation as well. And, you know, the root network that forms, you know, underneath that we can't, you know, see. So I I think those are all fundamental factors that, you know, increase the growth, I shouldn't say growth, the uh, rate of maturity of the forests. Yeah. Sure. And it's really interesting to me that this process or practice came out of a region where you also have a lot of other really unique agricultural concepts also coming in around the same time period, some of it a little bit later, but things as simple as uh, like Fukuoka's natural farming, you know, if you're familiar with Korean natural farming and the idea of indigenous microorganisms and inoculating soils in order to have the right fungal types and things like that, that this all comes from the same, speaking from a global perspective, region. It's just really interesting, and I haven't really quite figured out why it's happened. I think it's because a lot of the indigenous traditional practices haven't been completely, well, I don't want to say completely erased, but haven't been marginalized so much as they have in places like where I live and where you live. So it's really interesting just to kind of see these, these dynamics play out and to present some really hopeful resources for the future mm. where, um, you know, we're trying to figure out what to do with climate change and uh, the idea of like reforestation, desertification, all these things that we're trying to wrap our heads around. And the places we're getting, I think, in my opinion, some of the best or the most optimism are these practices that came about because of these traditional methods that haven't been completely marginalized. Because, mm, I mean, a, a really important part of the Miyawaki method is actually making the compost tea. Now, I'd never encountered that before I started doing my research into the Miyawaki method, and I was quite intrigued by it. But that's that involves, you know, collecting soil samples from remnant vegetation and from key species, using them and, you know, and then inoculating the soil with them prior to planting. And that, I think that's a fascinating way of doing things, you know, basically boosting the soil before you get the plants in. I think that's a really incredible approach to getting forests to reach maturity quickly and sort of establishing like healthy soil. So. Oh, wow. I, I was aware of the idea of like the inoculating the soil, but I'd never seen any data exactly how he had suggested even in his own book. I don't think I read anything about that. So this, this is from uh, Shivendu Sharma in, from A Forest. Um, he talks quite a lot about making compost tea, and they have a very specific way of making it. And part of theirs is to use um, cow manure, to actually activate and they collect you know, the soil samples from you know key species within the donor area, if you will. But for, for me here, of course, I have to adapt that method because I can't go anywhere near any cow manure because it's way too rich for the soils that we have here because we've got very phosphorus intolerant plants here who use the low nutrient levels and they're very specifically adapted to those sort of conditions. If you add any excess phosphorus to some of these plants, these are the proteaceae, they'll just basically die. So we have to be quite careful about what we do with our compost tea here. But the very idea of, you know, harvesting some soil samples from a healthy system and then putting them into the awful soils that we have in our urban systems, you know, to enhance the soil here, I think that's a really novel approach. So what exactly are you guys using as your um, base, I guess you could say, for that compost tea? So the compost tea, the recipe that I've got from one of my other forest makers, uh, Adib 
who has um, the other forest. I don't know if you've heard about him. He, he's, done, he's done quite a few forests. He uh, put we put very ripe fruit in molasses, uh, soil from the healthy system, and then uh, rainwater because obviously don't, we don't we can't use tap water here because our tap water is full of chlorine, <laughs> kill all the microbes <laughs> immediately. And then you just leave that you you aerate that and you leave that to sit for two days and then you dilute it and then you um you can put your plants in it. I don't do that here because that could be problematic for my plants. But we um pour it on over the forest soil before we do the planting. Awesome. So it's basically, if you're familiar with Jadam, it's JMS, the Jadam Microbial Solution. It sounds like it's pretty much the same or it's pretty similar process. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Again, it's all these things from the same region just kind of overlapping and creating like even better systems. It's really cool. And to, to, add, an to add an Australian tinge to the compost tea, because um, a forest in, in India uses cow manure. I use kangaroo poo. <laughs> <laughs> is it, so is it pelletized? Like, I, I don't know much about kangaroos, obviously. It's about the size of a, oh, I don't know how big a diamond is, but it's about the size of a 10 cent piece here, which is kind of like, I don't know, I don't know how big a dime is, but <laughs> it's pelletized, no. yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. that's so cool. Is it like rabbit poop where you can use it directly as a manure or is it something that you need to like age like uh, other manures? Sorry, this is going down a rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even mean to do that I, one. I use, I use it fresh because I want to get the microbes out of it, so I don't want it to be dry. So I, I bung it fresh into sure. the compost tea to let all the microbes come out and do their thing. So, yeah. Fresh, awesome. fresh is best. <laughs> fresh is best. <laughs> hey there, it's Andy from the Pork Rolls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting porkrolls.com and clicking on the Patreon Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Yeah, so I think um, for a lot of people, myself included, this concept of like a tiny forest is um, versus you see on the internet, like these like videos from like now this and whatever, where it's like, oh, in China, they planted a uh, hundred thousand trees over like two miles or whatever. And you're like, yeah, I can't do that. I, I have no place. Like I, I can plant a couple hundred trees, but I can't do that. I think with the tiny forest, it's like, okay, I, I have a strip near me, near the highway, near the road between me and my neighbor's yard. That's just kind of grass. I could do something like this. And I think that's really Really empowering and also I think helps us see our, our local ecology in a lot different light and that's really important for somebody that's not an ecologist but wants to do something even if it was I know some folks there's been sites that have been as small as like four or five hundred square feet I think the smallest I've ever seen was 300 square feet being something that was capable of actually sustaining some kind of life that would like benefit like and create that that habitat. So for folks that are not ecologists, they're not they don't have access to those old growth forests and they want to do something like this, how can they find some I know you've talked about a little bit about like indigenous resources and some textbooks. Is there more that people can be doing to try to fill some of these gaps? In terms of their species selection, you mean or just in terms Yeah, in terms of like just finding some of this 
basic information without having to like go down, uh, I guess, like into too much research? Like, are there any really easy ways to do these, these types of things? Mm, it's, it's, it's tricky for the Miyawaki method because you really do need specific species information to make sure you're planting what was there, you know, what would have been there, you know, if the land hadn't been cleared. I'm just thinking of just local organizations, local conservation groups, because they would have information that would be useful to the, you know, the average person. And they wouldn't just necessarily use, um, you know, the, the species names. They'd have more common names as well, which is more it makes things more accessible for people. So that'd be my first sort of maybe a port of call along with some sort of basic internet searches to see, you know, what you could find from government documents, historical stuff. Yeah, okay. it, it is It is tricky if you're living in a, an area that's been really built up and built up for hundreds of years because there's, the information will be, you know, hard to come by. Okay, so like I, I'll pick on myself a little bit. So if I go into an old growth forest or even like an older forest, maybe not necessarily old growth, and you start looking and we're looking for these clusters, right? This this uh, canopy understory and trying to figure out how what patterns emerge in these sites. Now, when we talk about patterns, are we talking about trees that are 20 feet apart from each other or a hundred feet apart from each other or just general feelings of like, I feel like I see these trees like clustering in these general regions. Uh, like how, how do you think about that when you're starting to like, I guess, extrapolate that data in a way that can be really difficult because forests aren't these like very clear cut resources that are like very evident that like these patterns distinctly emerge. We don't necessarily have to look for patterns. Probably one of the easiest ways to do it is to do a, like a 20 by 20 meter, I don't know what that equates to an empirical, a 20 by 20 meter like uh, quadrat, if you will, a really big you know section of an area and go through and just look at the species that are within that. And then you can determine your species composition for your forest. And if you do, if you do one or two or three of those, you can get an idea of which species are in there, how many of each type, you know, how they relate to each other, that sort of basic sort of stuff will give you the composition that you'd need for your forest. In all of the projects you've done, has there has there been anything in particular that's kind of come out as, uh, I didn't really expect to see this, or maybe this works a little bit better than what, what the traditional method might suggest, like anything just from that hands-on experience that is a little bit different? Well, from a hands-on perspective, what I was really surprised by was the uh, speed at which the, the soil composition changed, the microbial composition. So I collected some soil samples before I put the forest in the ground just to get a baseline of what was there. And the structure was very bacterial dominated, as you'd expect for an, a, you know, a really poor urban soil. And within days of planting the forest with the compost tea and the soil remediation, adding the compost into the soil, the microbial balance had shifted towards the fungal loading. And that, I thought that was quite impressive. And nine months later, I did a comparison between the soil microbial composition in the forest and so some in the adjacent bushland where I actually conducted my surveys. And it was almost identical in terms of the fungal oh, wow. ratio. And that actually blew me away. And then I did a comparison inside the forest and outside the forest. And you could definitely see this, the bacterial loading outside the forest was really high compared to inside the forest. So, yeah, that that was quite surprising to me. And also from a social perspective, you know, I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking I was going to be more blown away by the biological sciences side of thing, but the social side of thing was actually really impressive as well. The capacity of Miyawaki Forest to engage the community in environmental action is actually quite profound. So I'm taking these forests mainly into schools. I have done one community-based forest. But, you know, 
the feeling out there is that children often feel really disempowered by the enormity of the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. And these forests actually give them the capacity for hands-on action. And so they get very excited about planting their forest. They have a very strong sense of ownership over the forest. And the really powerful thing about this is that the children, you know, get to grow with their forests and you can sit back and you can watch them. And because these forests do tend to grow very quickly, you know, the, like the forest I planted last year with the children of um, one of the local schools, some of the plants in the forest are already taller than the children. And they, they are absolutely fascinated by that. And I'm just hoping that it inspires them to, you know, take more environmental action. They can make a difference on a local scale. So the social side of this is, is actually really impressive, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'd imagine that some of the parents are probably also, equ- I don't, maybe not equally, but also, you know, interested in the process because it's engaged their kids in that way. And uh, that fungal information is incredible. Like that's, <laughs> that's amazing that it could take over and um, create such a similar climate so quickly. I, I think it's really inspiring and hopeful. Yeah, I was actually quite blown away by that. I said, when I got the results, like, what? <laughs> yeah, very impressed. It's just, just on the community side of things, the, the program I run, the, the children actually um, to create the compost ready for their forest, because I try and do a, use a sort of circular economy approach to the whole forest making. The children actually put in their lunchbox scraps and then that contributes to the compost. But then we also go out into the wider community and we collect fruit and vegetable scraps from the local supermarkets, you know, coffee grounds from the local coffee shops. And by doing that, they actually, the community actually becomes really interested in what's going on as well. And they asking, oh, how's the compost going? Have you put it in the forest yet? What's happening with the forest? So yeah, that's another way. So it's not just the school community that sort of gets involved. It's kind of the wider community as well. And it's sort of echoes outwards. I think that's really an awesome part of these forests too. You're owning the process through the community and that requires some community buy-in or at least a, a knowledge of it existing. And I think that's really important because while I think there's a very good case to be made that changing adults' habits and visions and all of those things can be really difficult. Kids is fairly easily easy and you can, you know, imprint on them with these types of projects and hopefully make the the next generation a little bit more conscientious about their decision making around the how it impacts bigger systems and i think that's important to do now i know you've been primarily working around elementary schools i believe mostly elementary schools now with the experience you've had now are you looking to do any bigger projects do you have anything really exciting that you think folks are going to be interested in hearing about well, I can think of anything extra. I, I will be doing a high school next year. I'm working with some. Okay, okay. so you're growing up. I'm growing up. <laughs> yeah, I'm working with some cadets. They're kind of like um, bush ranger cadets who do, do sort of environmental action. So they they're actually part of the the upper school community, and so they're going to be planting their own forest actually in their school. But they're the ones who are going to be maintaining and, and organizing it. So that's kind of nice. To get some bigger kids involved. That's awesome. Mm. And this, the cool thing is that this, this, the program I do is also engages children with STEM. So one of the schools I was working at, we were getting the compost ready and we're taking some temperature readings of the compost to see how hot it was getting and if it was, you know, if it was cooking or not. And one of the kids went, oh, wow, so this is science. And I was like, oh, cool, maybe I've engaged someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So actually, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about and I think has been one of the criticisms of the Milwaukee concept, I guess you could say, is that because we're planting 
primarily the the trees and the trees and bush species, the understory doesn't get the attention and doesn't really fill in as much as a, a natural old growth forest might. I'm curious if you've seen any evidence of that or the contrary, that those native understory species start to move in at some point. Mm. Well, the thing is with the forest that I'm planting, I plant the understory species so they're actually part of it because they're an essential part of the Australian bushland because our bushland is quite open. It's not like the old growth forest where you have an extensive canopy that covers. It's more an open system where you have a lot of understory species and then some some trees you know, within that. So I think um, with some of the older forests, I know that some of the forests in Europe, the understory is filling in um, from the experience of some of my Sugi um, fellow Miyawaki forest makers. Yeah, it's all filling in. So I think there is evidence that you do have colonization of grasses and things afterwards, because obviously you don't plant grasses as part of the Miyawaki method. Although the new system that's coming out now through a forest um, says you don't plant ground covers, you don't plant grasses, but you can plant grasses after one year. So after the other trees have started to take off the other plants. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, a little bit more work, but mm. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In terms of the invasives that you're dealing with, has it been successful in keeping them out with the, the mantle and all of those practices? Have you had a lot of success with that? Yeah, we, ha we have um, something called cooch grass here, which I think is called something else in the other parts of the world, but that's like a really horrible invasive grass. It's rhizomatous and it's just really difficult to remove. Um, with the with the thick layer of mulch that you put on the Miyawaki forest, it does keep it down to some extent. But I know that in the first six months of having one of our forests in, that was a real problem. You had to go in and weed it. But now um, it's not so much a problem at all. Because I think, you know, through extensive weeding, we've just managed to nip it in the bud and the, the mulching is really good at keeping it in check. So I haven't had anything coming up except some tomato plants from the compost, <laughs> which was kind of cool. And they had some fruit on them, so we ate that. <laughs> yeah, can't let them seed, so. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, apart from that, we've been pretty good with the with the invasives so far. Yeah. Um, we have some had some invasive insects in, some introduced insects coming in, um, which is interesting. But that they're they're common throughout the, the region where I am anyway. So like the the ordinary you know garden snail, which is introduced and. Um, one species of um, leaf miner that's introduced as well, but they're pretty much widespread across our urban areas anyway. Yeah. The, what you're talking about with the invasive species kind of reminds me of a lot of arguments around like regenerative agriculture and grazing. It's like, is the practice itself the reason why you're not having, you're able to control these species or is it because you're paying attention finally? Mm. And I think it's a little bit of both. Like now that you're managing this site, you're, you're taking the time to mulch, you're taking the time to weed and, um, in reality, when we talk about invasive species, that's really all we have to do is take the time to to manage them. And uh, there's a lot of reasons why we don't, because it's a lot of work and like nobody's paying you to go on the side of the highway and pull up some invasive species. You know, no one's going there to pick up garlic mustard, but it, it should and probably needs to be done. And uh, on these sites, at least we're able to do that until they're unable to compete with those those old growth forest species. Mm. So I think that the good thing about the Miyawaki method is the forests are tended with love and care by the people who plant them, generally speaking. So, yeah, if invasive species do rear up, you know, we can usually nip them in the bud fairly quickly. So we love our forest. Yeah, there's ownership of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that ownership is really important, yeah. um, not just for 
the species themselves to be successful in those forests, but also for the community to have that ownership of the process as opposed to an organization coming in and doing a project and walking away and nobody feels attached to it other than, yeah, it looks nice. And then it, when it starts to fall apart, nobody feels the, the need to own it and try to fix it. Yes. And uh, engaging with the community in that way is really uh, not just good for people to have that ownership as well, but also for people to have a common space and a common common cause that I think is very much lost in the, the modern world. Mm. Yeah, the children are really invested in their forest. They really do have a strong sense of ownership over it. And like the, the forest I planted last year, it had its first birthday party a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and it, it actually had a cake and the children made oh, boy. it. Oh, boy. It was they sang happy birthday and they were so excited. It was really awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I, that would be a ton of fun. I would love to get a, a birthday party for a forest going. That seems like something we should be doing more of. Yeah, uh, it's pretty special. <laughs> yeah, uh, so for people that have been enjoying your thoughts on the Miwaki Forest and want to see some of your work, uh, I know you guys have a uh, Instagram handle anywhere else that they can, if you want to share that, and um, if there's anywhere else to either find your research or where you'd definitely like to direct people that want to learn more about this stuff. Mm, okay. So um, my Instagram handle is Miyawaki Forest WA. I've also got a, a website that's just about to be launched. It's called pocketforestwa.org. And I've got a Facebook, a dreaded Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pocket Forest WA. And you can also find my work on um, Murdoch University's website that's in Western Australia. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. I uh, appreciate your time and I definitely am looking forward to seeing some more of your forest come, come to life. Yeah, me too. It'd be super fun. And I'll, I'll hopefully have some um, scientific publications out pretty shortly that people can look at and read and get some nice empirical data. Awesome. Thanks so much. No, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Mm-hmm.